welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Peter Zimmerman, who's a research economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Peter worked until recently and for 13 years as a senior economist at the Bank of England, where he specialised in cryptocurrencies, blockchain, banking and financial regulation. Peter, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Could you start by telling listeners about yourself? You know, what is your background and where are you currently working? Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm an economist. I'm currently visiting the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. I was until recently at the Bank of England. Um, so I'm an economist working on cryptocurrencies and banking. And um, it's important for me to say that my, anything I say just represents my own views and my research and is nothing to do with the views of the Federal Reserve System or the Bank of England. Okay, thanks, Peter, for explaining that. You recently published an academic paper on Bitcoin in which you point out that the way prices are formed in this cryptocurrency is quite different from the way this happens in traditional financial markets. Could you explain why that is? Certainly. Um, so th th this paper is about um, the interaction between um, cryptocurrencies as a means of payment, as an object of speculation, and also the underlying blockchain technology. So the idea is here is that um, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin derives its value from its use as a means of payment. If people use it as money, it's valuable. If they don't, it's not. But there is an unusual um, feature of the architecture of, of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which is that if you want to have a decentralized currency, um, there is a technological con a constraint on the number of transactions that it can handle per second. And this is you know, part, of, part of the hard coding. So, for example, famously, Bitcoin can only handle an average of seven transactions a second. Ethereum can handle twice that. Other cryptocurrencies generally can do a bit more. But the point is, is that they're all limited. So if I want to buy a cup of coffee, let's say using Bitcoin, and at the same time, Paul, you're buying a cake, then we're in competition for blockchain space. The fact that your, your transaction needs to be recorded on the blockchain to be settled for you to get your cake, that, um, that might cause my transaction to be delayed or might cause me to have to pay a higher fee in order to settle on time. Um, but... but where the insight in my paper is, is that there's also uh, speculators also enter this equation. Let's suppose that I want to buy coffee and at the same time you're buying, uh, you're buying Bitcoin in the market. Then um, you're going to need blockchain space too. At some point, you're going to want to take that Bitcoin off an exchange, maybe to transfer it to another exchange or to put it into your own wallet so that you can use it. So by speculating, you're taking up blockchain space and you're making it harder for me to use the cryptocurrency as money. Um, so, so that leads to a, an interesting interaction between the speculative side and the payment side that we don't see with other, um, with other assets. And in particular, if you're buying it, if, if, you're, you know, if you want to buy Bitcoin in the market and you take up blockchain space, you make it harder for me to use it as money. You're slowing down my, I have to wait longer for my coffee. And that makes me less keen to use Bitcoin and um, that lowers the price because its price depends on how much people use it as money. This is really odd, actually, because by, by buying um, Bitcoin in the market, you can actually drive down its price by driving out the people who want to use it as money. Now, this seems to violate Economics 101. Normally, when demand for a product goes up, we expect its price to go up, right? That's just uh, the very first thing you learn in, in, in economics. But this seems to be something quite different um, because of this um, because of this constraint. 
And um, this analysis really relies on two features of cryptocurrency that I don't think um, exist for any other asset class. The first is that its value depends on its usefulness as a means of payment. Um, and the second is the settlement constraint. So the fact that hard-coded, there is a constraint on how many transactions can be settled per second. So, so Peter, can I just stop you there for a second? So in a sense, Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrencies are building in the cost of settlement to the you know, to the price of the asset uh, explicitly. Is that correct? Yes, they should be. It should, the, the, the hard risk, the, 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 in all else held equal, the harder it is to settle a, a, a currency, the lower the price would be. So, for example, if we could, in theory, if we could change the coding of Bitcoin so it could handle 10 transactions a second instead of seven, its price should go up. All else is okay. held equal. But if we contrast that to the way settlement takes place in other financial assets, let's say shares or bonds, um, uh, those those things happen kind of behind the scenes. They're not built in explicitly into the price of the asset or the way the, 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 the price behaves. Um, it, it's more... So, so, so it, I'm not sure that's quite true. So, you know, there is a branch of economics called market microstructure that looks at how these kinds of frictions do affect the prices of assets. And in some cases, they might matter quite a lot. But typically, um, for, for most assets like shares, the way that they're settled, there's just enough capacity to settle the shares so that this constraint rarely binds except in extraordinary days. Okay. Whereas for Bitcoin, okay. it regularly binds. So we saw this, I mean, the whole inspiration for this work came in 2017, just watching the market, seeing this raft of new speculative activity around the summer of 2017, driving up um, fees, driving up waiting times, and yes. people complaining that they couldn't use it as a means of payment. Yeah. So there's a kind of uh, a constant feedback loop then in, what, in, in Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrencies. You've, you've got speculative activity that uh, uh, reflects people's belief that it might become a, you know, a, a means of payment in the long term. But the more that that happens in the short term, uh, the more kind of investors collectively are acting against that ultimate goal. That's right. Yes. It's, it's almost paradoxical in a way. You're, um, by trading it, you're betting that people will use it in the future. But by doing so, you're making it harder for people to use it in the present. Okay. So how unique uh, in that sense? I mean, you're, you, you've been studying um, this for a while, but how, how unique in terms of the, the theory of economics and the theory of the way financial markets operate are cryptocurrencies? I, you know, I'm not aware of any other asset that works quite like this. So the, the, obviously, there are other assets that, where you might have um, settlement constraints, but usually these don't bind as often as they do with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And often the constraint is, um, can be alleviated. So, uh, for example, you might argue, well, it's hard to use, um, it's hard to use uh, gold as money, for example. There's a settlement constraint, just the cost of moving it around, the cost of mining it. Um, but those, you know, the supply curves um, slope upwards and those, those constraints can be alleviated. If the price of gold goes up enough, if there's enough demand for it, there will be more gold mined. There will be more shipping. Uh, but that can't happen with cryptocurrencies where the supply constraint is hard-coded. Okay. And in your research, you, you, know, you suggest that um, Bitcoin might have two distinct phases in its, uh, in its development. One is a, a kind of the early phase, the hype phase, when there's this constant speculative activity about the future uses of the cryptocurrency, which cause these, this price volatility. And then later on, an adoption phase where presumably things settle down a bit and things are less volatile. How can we tell if we're you know, moving from the hype phase to the adoption phase? That's a good question. Um, the, um, 
I suppose we would expect to see slowly gains from trading drying up and therefore less and less speculative activity and more and more adoption as a means of payment, um, lower fees and, and less congestion. I'm not convinced we've seen that so far. I mean, we go through phases of, um, of, of that, that, that seems to be starting to happen actually in 2018, 2019, but more recently, um, and in fact, just in the last few weeks, we've seen um, fees shoot right up again. Yes. Uh, what, could, what about the um, impact of technologies that are, that are being built on top of the, the Bitcoin blockchain um, technologies, such as the Lightning Payments Network or Segregated Witness, which is a way of um, printing more transactions into each block? How, how significant have these uh, technolo technologies uh, been in improving the, the usefulness of Bitcoin as a payments instrument? So, so I, I think they're pretty significant. We're, I'm actually doing some follow-up work in this area with Ananta Divakarini at the University of Bergen. We are looking at whether these, um, whether these technologies, by taking um, settlement off-chain, they're able to alleviate the blockchain constraints. So um, we look at, the, the, uh, until, you know, as I said, until, since the beginning of 2018, until the last month or so, there's been a steady decline in congestion, in the, at least in the Bitcoin mempool, and, redu and reduction in fees, despite the fact that speculation was as high as it's ever been. Um, now, we actually find a, a very clear association with adoption of the Lightning Network. So, um, essentially, if, if the when the adoption of the Lightning Network increases, either because there's more channels or because there's more Bitcoin locked into the network, then um, conge mempool congestion falls. Um, we don't see such a clear association with SegWit. Is there a bit, uh, but not not so clearly. That's probably because there is a, um, a clear limit on how big SegWit, SegWit can be. You can only it can only SegWit can at best quadruple the capacity, and that's if every transaction is using SegWit. Whereas Lightning Network, there is at least no theoretical limit to to how much you can scale up the network, and that, and that really seems to be having a very clear impact so far. Okay, so the, the recent fee rises we've seen on <clears throat> on the Bitcoin blockchain um, should be seen in the in the context of that uh, technological improvement. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. So I haven't studied um, what's gone on over the last few weeks in the context of this model. I don't think. I mean, my, my hunch is that it's not related to the Lightning Network. It's related to um, mining difficulty dropping off after the um, after the halvening. Um, so that should be something that corrects itself, but we'll see. Okay. Could you talk more broadly uh, about the potential uses of Bitcoin as a, as a financial settlement network on a global basis? Yeah. Um, the, so, so my paper suggests that in theory, uh, as you said, there could, after the hype phase that we've been living through for the last 11 years now, there could at some point begin an adoption phase where it's used more and more as a means of payment. I think it's fair to say we haven't really seen that. There hasn't really been much progress in terms of using Bitcoin as a means of payment on chain. Um, and we've, you know, chain analysis releases data where they try to, to, where they suggest that still the vast majority is, uh, of Bitcoin usage is speculative. But it does seem as if, um, as if off-chain technologies are having an impact and helping to, to implement on-chain settlement. I, I uh, sorry, off-chain settlement. I, I, I don't really envisage that Bitcoin is ever going to be a global currency. It's never going to replace the dollar, or it's, I don't think it's even ever going to replace uh, fiat currencies 
in any major economy. Uh, the future I see for cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is the um, is to be used in particular markets where 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 there's particular requirements. And the, uh, and for me, the real strength of cryptocurrencies is the ability to transact privately and anonymously online. So normally, when we want to, if I want to buy something, if I want to to trade with you, if I want to I know, buy an apple from you and do it anonymously, we might use cash. Right, because it can't be traced. But there's no, you can't use cash online. So um, that creates difficulty. And you know, this was this is not an original idea. This was part of the whole impetus behind um, behind the creation of Bitcoin and its antecedents. So um, if I, you know, if I want to transact with you over the internet um, without cryptocurrencies, I have the choice of things like credit cards or PayPal. But there's always some third party who knows who I am and what I'm doing with cryptocurrencies. It can be anonymous and private. Obviously, this is attractive to criminals who value privacy very highly, but you don't need to be doing something illegal or illicit in order to value privacy. I, you, know, you could be doing something like, for example, buying medicines for a condition that you don't necessarily want the world to know about. You might want to protect yourself from online scammers, from spam. These might be good, legitimate reasons to want um, to transact privately. I, I don't really think the market for private transactions is going to be that big. You know, it might be if it's worth 1% of global trade, that's still a lot. You know, that's still the GDP of the UK. So, um, so, so I, I, I would see a future for cryptocurrencies. Obviously, with the settlement constraint that Bitcoin has, it, there is a limit to how much it will ever be able to do. But Bitcoin is not the only game in town. And maybe there will be a, a, a state of the world in the future where, uh, where, where, where Bitcoin is either forked and becomes um, and becomes a, a, the original Bitcoin code that falls out of favor, or um, or there's a hard fork and, and Bitcoin has changed permanently to be able to handle a, a higher number of transactions. Okay, but the way settlement works in in Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrencies is quite different from the way it it, it occurs in the traditional financial system. Um, you know, with the the, the Settlement being based upon probability in in uh, in Bitcoin, whereas in the in the traditional financial system, it's you know at a point in time it's kind of guaranteed by a settlement institution. So that 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 uh, that, that difference is not going to change. Yeah, uh, I mean this, this, is this is the trade. This is the trade. for how much the you know the the invention of cryptocurrencies might be influencing thinking at uh, at um, settlement institutions about how settlement itself takes place. Yeah, I mean, so I have to say, I'm quite, personally, I'm quite sceptical about the future of central bank digital currencies. So obviously, I'm not talking with a policy hat on here, just given my own views. But, um, you know, I just, as I say, for me, the main, the main selling point for cryptocurrencies is the ability to provide privacy and anonymity. And although central banks have done that by providing notes and coins, they don't really like it. You know, it, it has been said of, of cash that, you know, if it was invented today, we wouldn't allow it because, it, you know, it, it does facilitate um, um, a lot of criminal activity. And, and, and some um, economists have argued that we shouldn't have high denomination banknotes um, because, because it helps facilitate um, um, criminal activity. Um, so I, I think if central banks did create a digital currency, it would be it would be centralized and it would be um, it, 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 it would be possible for them to trace transactions and even if they claimed it wasn't i don't think it would be a very credible commitment for them not to trace transactions yeah. now pe people might be happy with that fair enough but 
really, I think all this is, is an electronic bank account directly with a central bank. So yeah. this is not going to use blockchain technology. And really, the, the, the excitement here is not a technological question, as far as I can tell. It's really just an economic question. It's saying, is it good for members of the public to have direct accounts with a central bank rather than having to bank via a commercial bank? Now, it, it might be, it would mean massive, if you did that, it would be massive changes to the uh, banking system who suddenly find themselves uh, disintermediated. Uh, but it's not an original idea. I mean, James Tobin wrote about this in the 80s. Yeah. Just returning to Bitcoin for a second, um, one of the most controversial aspects of the network has been the, the amount of computational power necessary to, you know, to secure the, the network, and, and it's risen uh, very substantially over the last few years, even though the, the price is not uh, the price of Bitcoin is, hasn't uh, gone back to its 2017 levels. The the, the amount of computational power is still, you know, until very recently, been been increasing steadily. So, uh, you know, what 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 do you think about the you know the the amount of power that's being devoted to the network? And does your research say anything about uh, you know how that might evolve in in future? Um, so my research uh, doesn't. It, it, it's not rely, it's, my research is not predicated on, on it being a proof-of-work system. So even with proof-of-stake, you can have limited settlement capacity. So proof-of-work systems do tend to be slower. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the estimates for energy consumption are huge. I, I tend to think that overestimates because they tend to assume that miners are making zero profits, which means that they're, it tends to be an upper bound on their actual costs. But even if it's an upper bound, it's huge. Um, I do think that things like the Lightning Network should um, should help alleviate some of that because it, essentially the Lightning Network, by moving transactions off chain, will reduce demand for blockchain space and reduce fees. So that will put a lot of miners out of business, and that should mean difficulty goes down over time, and the amount of energy that needs to be burned to maintain the Bitcoin network goes down. So as long as long as it can, as long as it's still the hash rate is still high enough to maintain um, security then this will probably be a good thing. Um, I, I, I think there are, there are other innovations that should lead to transactions moving off chain. So, for example, the development of derivatives markets uh, mean that speculators don't need to be um, making their transactions on chain anymore, but can essentially trade um, cryptocurrencies synthetically. Okay. How far can transactions move off the blockchain into, the, for example, the Lightning Network without compromising the security of the whole network because the, the, obviously the, the block reward in Bitcoin is halving every four years or so and in, in, you know, in, the, in the longer term future those transaction fees will be the only source of revenue for the miners. Yeah, so you know, Satoshi envisaged that as the, as the um, mining reward, as the Coinbase rewards halved that fees would have to rise to compensate and that, and that just, you know, holding cost fix, that, that just makes economic sense. Um, so I would, I, I mean, what I would envisage in the future is sort of a, a dual track economy. So if you want to buy, uh, uh, if you want to buy a coffee or something, if you're uh, sort of high, low value, high volume transactions will go via the Lightning Network. Um, but high value, low volume transactions will still be on chain. So maybe very big trades. Um, if you were, you know, buying a lot of Bitcoin, if you're buying a house, maybe transactions would be, exchanges would, tra would batch up transactions and make them on chain. So, the, that would mean that the amount of demand for transactions on the blockchain is, is low, but the stakes are high. And that might mean that people are willing, that, that those users are willing to pay high fees because as a proportion of the, uh, of the notional value of the trade is not very high.
Um, okay, so you think it's consistent? That, yeah, yeah I, I, I think this is a very natural way for the system to evolve. And really, it's a lot like um, we see with traditional payment systems. We have, um, in almost every major economy, we have a wholesale system and a retail system. In the UK, we have CHAPS, which handles uh, major large value payments, plus for some reason, house purchases. Uh, but for most most of the time, if you're doing a bank transfer or something, you'll use faster payments or BACs, which is a uh, uh, w w which tends to batch up transactions in a similar way, not identical, but a similar way to the Lightning Network. And uh, other major economies have a very similar setup. So it really, as with so many things, the uh, crypto um, financial system is really slowly evolving into something we already recognize. Okay. And, the, and the Lightning Network um, uses uh, payments in the Lightning Network have to be collateralized um, 100% by, uh, by Bitcoin. So uh, what constraint does that pose for you know, the broader use of it as a payment network, given that uh, you know, we're not in the traditional financial system, we're not used to collateralizing payments 100% before they're made? Yeah, it, it's not. Um, I, I, I and mean, the way I see it, and I think the intention is that um, you're collateralizing a channel, a flow of payments. So, you know, it, it, let, let's suppose, you know, let's go back to the coffee example. Let's suppose you run a coffee shop and I'm coming in every day to buy your coffee, but I am also um, selling you milk. Uh, so I come in every day to buy a coffee and you buy milk off me. And so there's a two-way stream of transactions going on over time. Then um, we only need to collateralize the highest net position that one of us has against each other. We don't need to collateralize all of those payments. So, you know, if you if you pay me three bitcoins and I pay you two bitcoins, then um, and that happens every day, then the highest net position one of us has against the other is going to be um, you know, three bitcoins on the first day, maybe four on the second, maybe five on the third. We don't need to we don't need to collateralize every single payment up front. Okay, so as the, as the as the usage of the Lightning Network uh, increases, then the constraints become lower. I think so, yes. It, it becomes more two ways as the volume builds up. Um, what, what's interesting about the Lightning Network is that it really becomes efficient when it's centralized. So rather than, rather than me making payments directly with you and with everyone else who, sorry, rather than me having a channel directly with you and with everyone else who, um, who I do business with, I should, we should all go via an intermediary. So there's some intermediary. I make my payments to that, to, to, to that node and they send the money on to you. Um, so this starts to look like a, a centralized financial system, like a bank, you know, like a system with a bank or, or, or with a central bank in it. And, um, you know, this is this has been pointed out before and we show in our paper that um, the Lightning Network just seems to have become more centralized over time. That should make it cheaper to use, but obviously it comes at a cost. Um, if, if you care about centralization, then um, suddenly you've got a node who you're dependent on and that, that gives rise to to risks like watchtower risk. Yes. So to, to what extent does centralization in the Lightning Network pose uh, threats to Bitcoin itself? Or is it, are, they, are, they, are they completely separate uh, questions? I think they're separate. I think whatever goes on in the Lightning Network, if it, you know, even if one entity controls it, the on-chain settlement is still there. And in a way that kind of provides that on-chain settlement is always there to provide competition. So even you know, if there's one node who tries to take over the whole Lightning Network and manipulate it or charge high fees, um, you can always settle on-chain. So that 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 does provide a boundary on how bad things can get. But 
on the whole, I would see the two things as, as, as reasonably separate. They are two different kinds of centralization. Okay. Um, you, Peter, I know from, from looking at your uh, CV that you've spent uh, also some time, quite a lot of time working on um, uh, settlement and payment systems in the in the traditional financial markets. And I'm just wondering how the um, you know the, the likely uh, well obviously with the introduction of cryptocurrencies, but the likely future introduction of other forms of private currencies, tokens, virtual currencies, whatever you want to call them, is how the introduction of these new instruments is impacting the way we look at those um, those kind of global settlement systems. Are, are they having to change to cope with the the, the new technology, or, or are they still regarding you know the people in charge of those systems still? think this is a bit of a sideshow and it's not yet that significant from the you know, perspective of the global market and how it's uh, I, mean, I, I would say the answer to both of those questions is yes so people are looking at it quite seriously and yet I don't think people see it as an imminent threat um, the, the, I, I think the issue is with, with, with payment systems they are something that doesn't seem very sexy but when it goes wrong it goes very badly wrong for you if you, if, you know if we can't make payments then the whole economy immediately grinds to a halt and everybody, uh, there's no liquidity at all. Um, so it's important for payment systems to be secure. That is an important part of what a central bank does. Um, so yes, central banks will be worried if suddenly other forms of, of money are being used. If these other payment systems, let's say something like Ripple, if it becomes systemically important, then um, the central bank may well seek to supervise it and regulate it. In fact, you know, in the UK, the Bank of England has a mandate to do that for any payment system. It, it, it sees the systemically important. Um, more, um, more broadly, though, there are, you know, there are a bunch of people, certainly, um, uh, you know, it's thanks to people at the Bank of England, at the Bank of Canada, uh, Bank for International Assessments, many other central banks. They are very forward-looking with how they think about it. They know that central banks aren't that good at technological innovation. And they need to keep looking for what's next. So it may be that in payment systems of the future, we will use blockchain technology to keep it to make it more secure or, or some sort of hybrid version of traditional central bank centralized settlements and blockchain technology. Um, that is something that central banks appear to be quite open to. Okay. And so, I mean, in general terms, the, the, the invention of these new types of um financial instrument could help to reduce systemic risk in future? They could. Okay, by, by taking away the, you know, the reliance or reducing the reliance on individual central settlement systems or single points of failure? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the idea. So, you know, to, to make it a bit more concrete, you know, uh, the central bank runs the payment system. It keeps, all, all the banks have, um, Accounts at the central bank, and the central bank needs to keep though keep that ledger honestly. If the central bank makes a mistake, then that's going to cause problems. So one way of increasing resilience would be to have many uh, copies of that ledger that are maintained separately in a secure way. And this probably wouldn't be completely open mining like you get with um, something like Bitcoin, but it might be that uh, approved members of the financial system each can maintain their own ledger and, uh, and are incentivized to keep it honest. That would be a way of improving resilience just because you have several copies of the ledger and if they, you know, if consensus breaks down, you can try and backtrack and build it up again. Okay. And could you, I mean, is it possible to talk in general terms about, you know, how um, these inventions are increasing the efficiency of the global financial system? 
Um, I, I'm not sure efficiency is the right word, to be honest with you. I think they are, by doing something like this, in the example I just gave, they're increasing resilience, probably at the cost of efficiency. If you're keeping several copies and having to communicate between several nodes, you are increasing costs and you are slowing down how quickly yeah. you can settle. But you are improving resilience because if that original ledger is tampered with or hacked, then, um, then, then you have other copies. Um, it's not clear this is really a blockchain. You need blockchain to do this, to be honest. I mean, you can maintain local copies on Google Sheets um, or other similar technologies. So it, it's, it's, um, I'm not necessarily sure it's, it's, um, that blockchain will be used for this, though it, it may well be. Okay, but if we're not talking about reducing, uh, sorry, about increasing efficiencies, we, we maybe then are talking about um, bringing some of the potential costs of the system into the, you know, into the systems, make it, making them more explicit. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, you know, if I run a central bank, if I run a payment system, I want it to be efficient and I want it to be secure. And um, there may be a trade-off there because if you want something to be more secure, you probably want to make it harder to make changes and update it. So, um, so, so, so you know, having decentralized ledgers provides a way of improving security at the expense of efficiency. Okay, and what um, what areas of uh, research are you now focusing on um, specifically with, uh, with cryptocurrencies in mind? So one thing that's interested me recently is a slightly different topic, but um, I saw that um, the CEO of Coinbase uh, um, has, has noted a large number of $1,200 checks being um, deposited at his exchange over the last couple of weeks of April when, yeah. the, when, the, when, the, when the stimulus checks in the, in the United States were posted out. Um, this is quite interesting, and so we've been looking into the data, and we're seeing uh, we're picking this up too. Um, so, so um, we're we're um, um, we're looking at another piece that looks at um, what happens when you get a windfill, and why would you spend it on Bitcoin? Well, Peter, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. It's a great pleasure. this new Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash newmoneyreview. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.